The thing about history is that everything happens all at once, everywhere, all the time. We imagine history as a series of individual events because that's how we learn about it. This happened and then this happened and then this happened. We make neat timelines showing history's progression, but that's not how it really works. So why not learn about history in a way closer to how it was experienced, one year at a time? That's what we're gonna do with this podcast. This is the year that was. Let's look at the year 1919. One century ago, the world was just recovering from the most devastating war the world had ever known. Here's how Gilbert M. Hitchcock, U.S. Senator from Nebraska, described it. The late war cost seven million lives and millions more of cripples. It has destroyed hundreds of towns. It has widowed millions of wives. It has brought in its train the inevitable consequences of war pestilence, and famine. One of the war diseases alone has cost this country over 300,000 lives of the civilian population. The disease that Hitchcock mentions was the flu. The Spanish flu epidemic swept into every corner of the world in 1918 and the first months of 1919. We don't know how many people died, but estimates put it between 50 and 100 million. In some parts of the world, whole communities were wiped off the map. In the United States, the disease wasn't as bad, but was still devastating. Well, I'll tell you, every woman that was pregnant died to taking that flu, that uh, in, influenza. I had a sister-in-law died. And uh, my sister died. And then I had several cousins die. That's Nanny Ferris, and the man who just interrupted her was her husband, James. They were interviewed as part of the Piedmont Southern History Project in 1979. People that die, they're very stoutest of people. Would, uh, now, we had a fireman at the place I worked. He, uh, he, I used to go out to the ballroom and smoke a cigarette, you know, and me and him were pretty good friends. One day I went out there and he said he wouldn't die. I said he's sick. And I went out there the next day and he said he was dead. He died just that quick with it. Sometimes. And a man across the street done the same thing, died overnight walking around his yard the day before. People must have been pretty afraid, too. Oh, they scared oh, people you, scared to death. Oh, you know, it was just a nervous wreck. That was a terrible time. It was a terrible time, but that terrible time was over. And the way some people saw it... We have come into a new world. It wasn't just senators who thought so. A young woman from Prince Edward Island, Canada, and her brother, just home from war, had the same faith that 1919 was the dawn of a new era filled with new possibilities. We're in a new world, Jem says. Okay, actually that girl is fictional and so is her brother, of course. They're characters from the book Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery, the last book in the Anne of Green Gables series. We're in a new world. Jem says, and we've got to make it a better one than the old. That isn't done yet, though some folks seem to think it ought to be. The job isn't finished. 
It isn't really begun. The old world is destroyed and we must build up the new one. It will be the task of years. I've seen enough of war to realize that we've got to make a world where wars can't happen. Rilla of Ingleside is usually dismissed as just young adult literature, and even worse, young adult literature for girls, but it's the only year-by-year -year account of World War I from the point of view of women on the home front. Yes, it's sentimental and kind of sappy, but it was written by an author who lived through the events she describes and tried to carefully capture the mood of the time. On the whole, it was a mood of optimism. Except not everyone agreed that the future looks so promising. Another writer of the era saw things in much more apocalyptic terms. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. That's the poem The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats, written in 1919. It's read here by English actor Dominic West in a production for the Irish Public Broadcast Service, RTE. Yeats was so far from convinced that the world was getting better that he predicted imminent, epic doom. And what rough beast! Its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. So that's dark. In many parts of the world, there was no question that the present was miserable and the future was dark. Mexico was in the middle of a civil war. Egypt, China, and Korea were shaken by protests and the resulting government crackdowns. India was swept by famines, epidemics, and brutal government repression. The Ottoman and Austria-Hungarian empires collapsed, leaving chaos behind. All of Eastern Europe, from Finland to the Balkans, endured riots, revolutions, invasions, and civil wars. And then there was Russia. On March the 15th, 1917, Tsar Nicholas II, supreme ruler of all the Russias, an autocrat who believed above all in maintaining his proud dynasty, was forced to abdicate in the face of political and economic pressure that led in the end to total revolution. The Tsar had taken personal command of his troops just a few months earlier to try to instill some enthusiasm for the bitter war they were fighting against Germany. It was a fateful mistake. Despite the loyalty of the senior ranks, most of whom came from the princely families who ruled Russia for so long, the suffering by the millions of ordinary soldiers in the war had been horrendous. Two million had died in 1915 alone. And it's reckoned that by 1917, some nine million troops were either killed, missing, or had died of cold and hunger. All popular demands for peace had gone unheeded by the Tsar and his officers. By now, though, the men had quite simply had enough. The Russian people overthrew the Tsar, experimented with direct democracy, and finally fell under the control of a brutal totalitarian Bolshevik government. At the exact same time, Ireland was in revolt against Britain. No, the Irish do not hate England. It pains me to disagree with Eamon de Valera, the president of the Republican Party, Sinn Féin, but I think many Irish did, in fact, hate England. De Valera probably hated England, but no matter. The Irish desire peace with England as with the rest of the world. It is not the Irish who are disturbing the world's peace. It is not they who are the aggressors, it is the British. The British can end this question in an hour by withdrawing their troops. 
The Irish on their side can end it only by sacrificing their nationhood and their national right to self-determination and freedom. Dave Alera talked there about self-determination, and that was an important concept in 1919. Self-determination was the right of people, nations, to be able to determine their own government and their own future. It was a powerful idea, but it had all sorts of unintended consequences. What do you do when the self-determination of one group of people interferes with the self-determination of another? That problem reared its head in Palestine. Britain took over the region in 1919 and supported the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestinian territory. The goal was to encourage the self-determination of the Jewish people, but that goal trampled on the rights of self-determination of the Palestinian people. Here's a Palestinian man, name unknown, interviewed in the 1930s, but expressing concerns that dated back to 1919. The main case of the Arabs is against the British government's policy in Palestine, a policy which, if continued, will surely have as a result the replacement of the Arabs by the Jews. This policy is not only contrary to the pledge given by His Britannic Majesty's government to the late King Hussein in the year 1915, for the establishment of a completely independent state, but is also not in accordance with the fourth point of President Wilson's 14 points, calling for the self-determination of all people. If you've looked at the news in the last, oh, century, you'll know we haven't solved this one yet. So many parts of the world were in turmoil. The United States was in better shape than most, but the country still faced challenges. Like, what do you do with all of those servicemen returning from war? All respect to Arthur Fields, for whom this was a big hit in 1919, the farm wasn't the problem. The factory was the problem, since a post-war decline in demand meant there weren't enough jobs for veterans. An even bigger problem was faced by returning African-American soldiers who expected to be treated with respect for their service and found only hostility and violence. African-American author and NAACP leader W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about the challenges faced by those veterans in a famous essay in May 1919. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States or know the reasons why. This country of ours, despite all its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. It gloats in lynching, disfranchisement, caste, brutality, and insults. By the gods of heaven, we are cowards and jackasses if we do not now marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. That's an actor reading from Du Bois's essay, Returning Soldiers, in a 2002 PBS documentary called The Rise and Fall of Jim Crow. 
The summer of 1919 was one of the worst in the history of U.S. race relations. Black men were lynched across the South. Many of the victims were veterans, some of them still wearing their uniforms when they were killed. At the same time, race riots broke out in Indianapolis, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and Omaha. The single worst incident was in Elaine, Arkansas, where more than 200 African Americans were massacred by their white neighbors. This terrifying time was known as the Red Summer for all of the bloodshed. While one group of Americans endured unimaginable suffering. Another achieved a milestone in freedom. The 19th Amendment passed the House and Senate in 1919, an achievement I can best mark by drawing on my childhood as a Gen Xer watching Saturday morning cartoons. That's Sufferin' Till Suffrage from Schoolhouse Rock. Okay, so the 70s vibe is a little over the top, but it's worth celebrating the victory of votes for women. Another constitutional amendment reached final ratification in 1919, prompting this question from popular singer Bill Murray. Everybody seems to talk of the prohibition and what they'll drink when everything is dry. Prohibition came into effect on January 17, 1920, and many Americans spent 1919 stocking their cellars before alcohol became illegal. 1919 wasn't all bad. Artists in the United States and Europe were casting off tradition and embracing a form of radical art called Dadaism. Artist Marcel Duchamp explained it like this in an interview in 1956. In fact, it was a negation, a refusal to accept anything like that, to deny any preoccupation of, um, of theoretical interest, you see? So, science was buzzing with a new theory from an obscure German physicist. It's called general relativity. It's a theory of gravity and everything. He's done it. That's actor David Tennant who played the British scientist Arthur Eddington in a 2008 HBO drama called Einstein and Eddington. Tennant then explains the theory of relativity in a very Doctor Who sort of way using a tablecloth, a loaf of bread, and an apple. The apple follows the curves made in space. Yes. Yes, space is shaped, and that is how gravity works. Space tells objects how to move. Objects tell space what shape to be, and there's a way to prove it. In fact, Eddington did prove it in a 1919 solar eclipse. Meanwhile, the United States was watching the Chicago White Sox take on the Cincinnati Reds in the Baseball World Series. The Reds won the nine-game series by five games to three. Only months later would word leak out that the White Sox players had conspired with gamblers and taken cash bribes to throw the series. The Black Sox scandal would transform professional baseball and break the heart of one little boy who couldn't believe that his hero, power hitter, shoeless Joe Jackson, would betray him. Why'd you wait so long to spill it, Joe? Hard guy. Was that as sweet as a hard guy? Joe! 
Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. That's from the 1988 movie Eight Men Out with a very young Charlie Sheen. And it depicts an encounter between Jackson and a young fan in a scrum of reporters on the courthouse steps after Jackson confessed to throwing the games. We don't know if this moment really happened. Accounts of the scene are inconsistent, but it captures the disillusionment many felt in the aftermath of the scandal. So who was right? Was the world heading toward disaster or to a new era of hope? That's the question we are going to ask over the course of this season. We'll look at all of these events, plus the German reaction to the Treaty of Versailles, the adventures of a group of Czech soldiers caught up in the Russian Revolution, the remarkable rise of a young J. Edgar Hoover, and what happened the day a tank of molasses exploded and flooded the north end of Boston. I hope you join me on this journey. The podcast launches September 3rd, and I'll release new episodes once a week for the next 14 or so weeks. Hit subscribe now on your favorite podcast app, and you won't miss a single episode. You can also check out the website at theyearthatwaspodcast.com or join the Facebook group. We are going to have an amazing time learning about 1919 together. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Elizabeth Lunday, and I am so excited to bring you The Year That Was.